Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest, Mike Jeter, is an Ivy League dropout and community college graduate from Pontiac, Michigan. Mike brings a pointed look at life, family, and relationships that few others can or should. From his upbringing in a family with 17 children to discussing his life as a father, Mike's comedy is jagged, mixed with smooth delivery. Mike has headlined some of the finest comedy venues in the country and has worked with such outstanding comedians such as Kevin Hart, Hannibal Barras, Natasha Leggero, Jim Norton, and Ricky Smiley, just to name a few. Mike was featured on Fox Television and Hulu's comedy showcase Laughs in Season 1 and the Detroit episode of Kevin Hart Presents Heart of the City 2 on Comedy Central in Season 2. Mike's full-length comedy CD, The Charm Offensive, is available on all digital platforms. Mike, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've become such a huge fan over the last year, but what's been going on with you lately? You just gave an awesome TEDx speech, but... You got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me, first of all. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I do have a lot going on. Started an entertainment company, uh, Sam Rose Entertainment, uh, where we're uh, producing shows and uh, booking talent at different venues for different events. Nice. As a matter of fact, we're booking comedians for the Traverse City Comedy Festival that they've just re-energized. So that was kind of a big deal for us. And um uh, booking shows across the, the state. Uh, we have a room in Lansing, a room in Pontiac, up in Traverse City, and we're working with the uh, Michigan Theater and Jackson. So, Jeez. Yeah, and I'm still performing. and Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. You started this entertainment company. How is it working then? You're identifying good talent, or how does that work? This is a whole new world for me. How it works is I've been in comedy for 10 years in the state of Michigan, and I know a lot of comedians. And I started booking for the comedy club up in Traverse City and working with the owner there, meeting agents and so on. I I start to, you know, get friendly with some bigger name comedians. So our goal is to develop a a nice roster of comedians to place them anywhere, anywhere in the state, possibly anywhere in the country, you know, grow out to that level. Right now we're interacting with agencies, emailing them, hey, who do you have? We like this person. How much do they charge? Well, that's too much. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go with someone a little lesser. And we just keep going down until we find someone's like, okay, this is a good person. And we'll put them up. And uh, like I said, it's been crazy. It's been a crazy few months. That's exciting, though. And you said you've been in comedy 10 years. So how did you fall into this? I feel like you obviously are like any comedian is obviously hilarious. But how did you fall into getting into comedy or decided, huh, maybe I should be a comedian. You know, it's like most funny people, you know, they've always been told that they're funny, you know, family, friends, it doesn't matter. And, uh, I would say, well, I mean, I started out a really shy kid. I was very, very shy. I'm still shy to a certain extent. Yeah. Very, very shy kid. And, um, I used comedy to kind of break the ice with people. And once I realized that I can get people to laugh, it made me feel less shy, much more comfortable. And I just started using that kind of as a icebreaker with anyone, like throughout my life, throughout my teens and adulthood and so on. And it just became a thing with me. You know, I'm very observant, quick-witted and all. And my friends and family, man, you should get into comedy. Well, uh, one day my ex-wife, outside of my daughter, best thing she did for me was get me classes at Mark Ridley's and Royal Oak at the Comedy Castle. And um, 
soon as I stepped on stage, I was like, yeah, this is me. And just been running ever since. I didn't realize you ha- you took, I love Mark Ridley. I actually saw you <laughs> at Mark Ridley uh, about a year ago. So that's so funny. So you took classes there. Now, I want to address you, you being a shy person, because that's hilarious <laughs> to me now that I've met you a few times. But what was it like kind of, I, I'm just still shocked, 17 children, you're one of 17, but were you super shy growing up? Did you have your more siblings that were more outgoing than you? Or what was that like? Oh, absolutely. Uh, everyone was more outgoing than me. You know, <laughs> I, I had, you know, my, my little circle of friends that I felt comfortable around. But even around other kids, uh, there was always something that I did that made me feel less shy. Like um, if it wasn't cracking jokes, it was playing sports. I was very good at sports. Uh, if it wasn't that, it was my art writing. There was something uh, that you know I had to put out in front of me to kind of protect me from people and tell them like, <laughs> "Well, okay, you're cool. All right, you can come in." And um, you know, growing up with that many siblings, it's the same way. I'm the sixth kid, so I'm basically in the middle band or middle child syndrome. <laughs> well, there's like seven of us with middle child syndrome, and uh, <laughs> you know, my older siblings they all had talents and skill the sisters could sing my brothers were athletes so it was kind of hard to find where i could fit in and carve out my own niche. so my thing was going to school getting good grades trying to excel at sports like they did and um it just took this comedy thing just kind of inched it, its way in to the point where i had teachers telling my parents you know you should get this kid into acting and i remember my my dad said no oh, he's going to college but that was his answer to everything. You right. know, I went and took the ASVAB to get into uh, the Marines. And I was 17. So my parents had to sign for me to be able to go. And my dad was like, uh, oh, he's going to college. I said, so I can't go into comedy. I can't go into military. So I ended up going to college. <laughs> and what was that like? Oh, God. Uh, being away from home. Jeez. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was at Cornell and that was tough. You know, it was my first time being away, away. And uh, I was out there for a year, survived it for a year and came back home. I'm like, okay, this isn't cool. <laughs> no. And ended up coming back home. So, yeah, it was wild to go from a home where, you know, there was just all kinds of noise and mayhem and all that to a room where I had a room by myself for the first time in my life. And it was just quiet. And that was spooky to me. Now I enjoy being in the quiet. <laughs> uh, back then, yeah. Not so much. I always say this, but how at 17, 18 years old, you're supposed to decide like, A, what you want to do for the rest of your life. And then it's like, oh, you're around your whole family for 17, 18 years. And then you're like, surprise, be on your own. And yeah. You're trying to figure out your identity and stuff the whole time. And at that time, in the late 80s, you know, the Cosby show was on and the different world was on. And I'm in a school where there were very few people, you know, that looked like me with chocolate faces and a ton of white kids, they were almost intrigued by us because a lot of them didn't grow up or interact with any black kids until they went to college. So that blew my mind. And the presumption was that my parents were rich, you know, they were doctors or lawyers because, you know, this is how representation matters. They were watching a Cosby show and they were like, oh, those are doctors. Your parents must be doctors and lawyers. Like, no, my dad worked on a line at a plant <laughs> in Pontiac, Michigan. Right. And to them, that was weird. So it was just a weird time. 
to try to discover yourself and be out in the world and all that. I was like, yeah, I'm going back home. So. <laughs> and I can only imagine how difficult that was too, but I never realized how diverse Michigan is, Metro Detroit, especially. Yeah. I mean, I went to Penn state and I was telling some story about whatever I said, I think someone that was Chaldean and they're like, what's a Chaldean or just like people don't know the different diversities we have. Or they're like, what do you mean? What's Middle Eastern food? What's this? I'm like, excuse me? Like, I'm a foodie here. So that was devastating. Just all American food all the time. But it's crazy. I mean, especially if you don't leave or you should leave your bubble, but it's, it's wild to me. And I can't even imagine, especially in the 80s with that too. Now, when you kind of not fell into comedy, so you sign up for these classes, you get into comedy. I like the good and the bad stories, so feel free to say whatever you want, of course. But how did your first show go? Here's the thing. My first show went really well. Love that. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, before I graduated from the comedy class, I entered it into a comedy contest and made it all the way to the finals. And this was against people that had been doing comedy for probably five, seven years longer than I had. And um, oh boy, that was tough. <laughs> were they were they were probably angry? Because there was a lot of like, who's this old guy? <laughs> yeah, man, I'm forty at the time. I'm forty two years old, forty three, and I'm up there with twenty somethings. And I know they looked at me like, okay, this guy's a ringer, you know, or whatever. And uh, it was weird being in that situation because in high school and college, you know, I was big man on campus, you know, captain of the football team and. All the, I was the black Ferris Bueller at my high school. <laughs> I love and, um, <laughs> I was, I hung out with everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and to go into comedy, I was like, kept at arm's length by all of the kids. And I felt like I, I've never been on this side of it. I'm usually with the cool kids. Now the cool kids are all looking at me like, oh, that guy must be a narc or something. <laughs> you know, I don't know how kids put the thing use now, but it was weird. It was a weird feeling. It was, and I, I got it that in comedy people come and go, you know, in droves. So I get it. They probably figured I, I wouldn't stick around for very long, but 10 years later. Well, and what made you stick around? Because, and I feel a lot of people are just afraid of that whole uncomfy, whether it's starting a business or, you know, changing career right. paths or doing something you meant to do or anything like that, especially in your forties. But what made you stick with it and not give up on it? Oh, God, uh, there's no greater feeling in the world than going on stage and telling jokes and having people react to it like immediate. It's an immediate. It's it's visual. You can see it. It's all of the senses. And um, there are certain times when the set goes so incredibly well that it's scary. It's like, OK, you know. They always describe it as drugs. You know, it's like a drug. It's just high. You constantly change. You know, like, uh, yeah, let's, let's calm down with that. But it is, it is. And once you get it and you get a good show under your belt, it's like, okay, I want that again. And I want it again and again. And if you get it so often, you know, I'm not going to sit here brand like, yeah, well, you know, like people laugh at my shows and they just loop it. <laughs> you know, my fear is like, I don't want to get to the point to where it becomes so, I I just get so used to it that it's not special anymore. So that forces me to write. It forces me to throw new stuff out there and say different things and and try different things. And I can't remember the comedian that said it, but I think it was Bill Burr. 
But he said that, you know, comedians have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's always stuck with me. So going back to the TEDx thing and the gentleman standing up and yelling out next <laughs> to get me off the stage, I was like, yeah, you know, it, it didn't really bother. You know, it's like, whatever. If you feel comfortable, I would love if you told that story because I loved that story and it wasn't not the most heartwarming, but I just, I just, <laughs> if you feel comfortable, I would love for you to tell that story. No, I, I, and I'll even tell you the, the comedian's name. I was chosen to open for Ricky Smiley and um, we were at the uh, soundboard at the Motor City Casino and it was my first theater gig. I'm like, I'm for it. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm doing videos, hey, look at me, take a picture. Right. Stuff. I really am for it. And um, I go out on stage and I wasn't nervous at all I, because you can't really see anything. You can see some people in the first few rows. But when I perform, I look out, I don't look down or whatever. So I'm like, you really couldn't see, you know, people, you know, their faces. And um, I could hear laughter come in and I hear nothing or very little. And I hear a big roar and some jokes and very little. It was just that the whole 20 minutes. And I swear, like, right when I ended my last joke, I just ended it and getting ready to bring out Ricky Smiley. This guy stands up and yells out, next, very loudly. And the room, like, <gasps> there were gasps and there were rumbles and people laughing. Some people laughed and all of that. And I was like, you know, I don't give a shit. I'm done anyway. And I'm like, all right, guy, you're, you know, you come here to see Ricky Smiley. And he comes out and he's flipping over on the couches. And the stage was set up like a, a living room. And there was a white couch, a couple of uh, chairs. A table, rug, lamp, it was set up like a living room. And he's flipping over and he's going around the stage, running around and cheering. And people just off their feet, losing their shit. And people were coming to the stage. And he was high-fiving them and he's shouting out, you know, sororities, black sororities, black fraternities. And people were saying, <laughs> hey, yeah, that's cool. You know, they were doing all of these stuff. <laughs> and I'm standing on stage watching all of this people lose their shit and it's just into my head like oh they didn't come to see me and i turned and went back into my dressing room and before we went out they ordered like this ridiculous egregious amount of chicken wings and i've never seen it was on some push cart and it was just a mound of chicken wings and there were maybe four or five people that were with them and he comes over and says, hey, brother, you want some chicken wings? And I was like, no, I don't eat before I perform. And I started, <laughs> when I went back to my dressing room, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get a bunch of chicken wings and eat them and watch them on a the monitor. I'm like, I, I don't want to eat chicken wings. So what's wrong with you? Uh, so I just sat back and watched him. And the whole show was like that. He was just wild. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's not my energy. That's not my vibe. So no big deal. Not my own. And that's okay. I mean, you have your own audience and you have your own things. And right. say it's it's you're not for everyone. You don't like everyone. I don't like everyone. I don't expect everyone to like me or you, right? The best people will, though. Right. You know, and, and that goes to the whole TEDx thing. I, I never get too high. I never get too low. I was very even killed about it. And afterwards, it was a meet and greet. And this older black couple 
comes back. They come up to me and they're like, you went to Cornell? I was like, yeah. They're like, we graduated from Cornell. Oh, wow. You know? And they're like, we loved your set. It was very smart. It was very cerebral. He's like, those jokes, those are very smart jokes. Keep doing what you're doing. And they turned to walk away. And I was like, okay, I don't need to reach everyone. You know, it would be lovely. Uh, that was the only show that I had outside of performing at a Halloween party at a church for a church function. That was the worst. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't seem, you know. Yeah. Halloween church. <laughs> I, you know, just I think like, it's a them problem. They decided. Like, they know what comedy is. I don't know. I feel like that's on them. Right. Yeah, well, sister asked me to do it. I'm like, you know, oh. okay. And, and I walked in, and they had a DJ, and I come out on stage. And at the, it's in this giant gym, this old gym. And at the other end of this gym was the biggest bounce house I'd ever seen in my life. This thing, I've, I've never seen a 10-story bounce house. It was that big. Oh. And there were kids just like popcorn all through this thing. And across the court, they were playing basketball. The mothers were sitting on the side. The kids were dressed in their costumes. No devil costumes. Of course not. We're all like biblical characters just walking around. There's little Abraham. There's Abraham, second Abraham <laughs> and Mary. They're all just getting their candy. And one kid was sitting on the stairs watching me. And I think he was a little, you know, like learning disabled. I don't know. But when I was done, he was the only one listening to me. And when I finished, he goes, that was good. And he just turned and walked away. And I was just like, <laughs> hey, you know, kids don't lie to you. So it had to be good. You know, if, if he sat there and listened the whole time. See, oh, it was a cold driving rain walking back to my car. It was just hit me in the face. And I got in my car and called my sister. Like, look, don't ever call me to do this again. You need a clown. Right. To perform for these kids. You don't need a comedian. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine what performing in a church would be like as a comedian. That's so funny. Well, you know. <laughs> I just picked I went to Catholic school till high school. So I'm just picturing it. I, I still have the smell of that old gym, the big giant old gym. And that's just what I'm picturing here is you on stage doing this. That's exactly what it was. And you can imagine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. So you yeah. being locked out of your car while it's running. And it's raining outside. Oh, no. That's exactly what it felt like. So this is the worst. I need to get out of here. Oh, my gosh. So that was the worst show. What was the best show you've had? I'm sure you've had multiple best shows, but top tier. Oh, boy. I've had some shows where I left there, like, shaking. Like, wow, that was ridiculous. Uh, I had a show opening for Artie Lang out at uh, Andiamo's and Warren. Uh, 800 people. I come off the stage and you have to walk through the crowd to get back to the dressing room. And people are high-fiving me, wanting to buy me drinks, wanting to hang out with me. And uh, the next day, my buddy found out he's in San Diego. He's a huge Artie Lane fan. And uh, he tweeted to Artie Lane, you know, hey, Mike Dears, boy, you know, I'm glad he got the over for you, dot, dot, dot. And Artie Lane tweeted like something very sweet. He goes, you know, He's the most interesting guy I've ever spoken to. I wish him all the luck in the world. I snapshotted that, posted it on my, my webpage for a while. But it was cool because he was just the nicest guy I had met in comedy at that time. He seemed genuinely interested in my life. He's asking me questions about my family and my kids and so on. So that was awesome. But, I mean, single greatest comedy experience that 
bar none is uh, doing the heart of the city thing with Kevin Hart. That was ridiculous. I wish everyone could feel that way. I, I do just one day. Everyone could feel what we felt. It was it was ridiculous. And I've been dying to ask you since I learned that you were on um, that show that you were picked for it, which is incredible. But yes. I got to know, how's Kevin Hart? And just walk us through that entire experience, because this has just been like. Poof. Yeah, it was. It was like that for <laughs> us. It's like two days. It was out of body. Um, the first day we went down, you know, we had to try on outfits and stuff. And the producer picked the red shirt that I wore. Now. I didn't want him to pick that shirt because as soon as you sweat in that shirt, it just shows up. So <laughs> the next day we actually did the filming and uh, we're at actually at the uh, music hall and the jazz cafe was where we shot it. And um, we're waiting down there, all this nervous energy, waiting for them to do the interview part. If you watch the, the show beginning part, uh, we recorded first. So we're on this platform, four of us around the table waiting for Kevin Hart to come in. He's out shooting B-rails and everyone's just hanging out, hanging out. And next thing you know, Hart's in the building. Kevin's in the building. You know, you hear all these walkie-talkies. Everyone assumed their position behind their cameras. And I'm looking at the stairs and I just see these, this little guy coming downstairs like, oh, that's Kevin Hart. So I'm thinking in my head, it's him. And he greets everyone. He comes over to the stage or where we were sitting. He introduced, they didn't introduce him. So he said, hey guys, how's it going? We're going to have a great time. Just relax. Cool. Points to the camera one, camera two. We went right into it. He interviews us. Uh, then he leaves. We sit around and wait until the performance thing later on at night. And we were actually in the uh, theater part where we shot the TED or we did the TED talk. That's where they had their cameras and stuff set up. Uh, monitors and they kept us back there. So we didn't know what was going on outside of that room. And when it was my turn to come out, I come out of the theater, I go down some stairs and it's just a sea of people in the lobby with monitors. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> and they take me down to the lower part where the jazz cafe is. And there's a sea of people in there. Well, there were only supposed to be 90 people, I think, in there. And they had maybe 150. <laughs> they just told people, you know, hey, the dignitaries and all that. So you're looking out and there and all this stuff. And I'm in my red shirt and I'm waiting in that hallway before you go down into the jazz cafe. And I'm there with my arms out like this. <laughs> trying thinking, not to sweat. <laughs> thinking like a big one. And like, <laughs> the uh, producer... She's like, are you okay? I was like, yeah. She's like, are you nervous? I was like, no, I'm not nervous. I'm just standing there with my eyes closed and my arms out. And she goes, okay. She's like, well, you're up next. I was like, okay. <laughs> and I go down, go on stage, and I look down at my three oldest children and my ex-wife are sitting in the front row. And I just went, huh. I was like, oh, oh okay. And I told my jokes. And the first joke I told, it was such a roar that came at me. And then I see Kevin Hart and Joey Wells, and uh, I always forget the third guy. There are three of them. They're sitting on this riser where the bar is, and I see Kevin Hart. Oh, he's he oh, freaking he's out. 
Love that. Well, I was like, wow, I'll make a Kevin Hart laugh. And I just kept going. It's like, I'm, my goal is to make this guy laugh the whole time. And um, I did my time. And then afterwards, we all came on stage and took pictures with us. And uh, it was just like, it was electric. And I felt that for the better part of a month. Um, and just could not come off of that high. It was such a high. And to happen after my mother passed, that made it even more ridiculous. That was ridiculous. I would say, like I said, the best thing that ever happened to me in my life, but I have four kids. So they're the best thing that ever happened to me. But this is like number five. <laughs> You're a good dad, see, because we could we could lie to them, you know. They won't listen to this. Yeah, they exactly. probably won't. It's okay. No. It's <laughs> adults. It's like I've already done what I was supposed to do. You guys, this was the best, second best thing after your baby sister, then the rest of you. Oh my gosh. I just can't even imagine. And I mean, you have to, if you ever have any days, you're like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. Like that should be confirmation that you're in the freaking right thing that you, Kevin Hart, you cracked up and we're on his special. Right. Yeah. I mean, there have been times where, you know, there are things that have happened that I go, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is my, you know, not only my passion, this is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. I've had people come to my shows that have just lost, you know spouses, children, parents, and lost their job or having a terrible week. Um, one show I did out at the Holly Hotel, my first time there, there was a group that came out to watch us perform and they come up to us after the headliner and myself after the show and they explained to us like, hey, you know, we really enjoyed your show. You guys are great. Like our friend really liked you. Me. I said, oh, well, thank you. I said, where is she? I'd like to, you know, say thank you. So, well, you know, she has brain cancer and she's very weak. So we had to carry her upstairs. There's no elevator there. It's an old building. And they're like, yeah, we found out she only has a couple of weeks to live. <gasps> but he's like, we've been crying. We've been upset, you know, trying to deal with it and all that. We're like, you know what? We need to do something to lift our spirits. We're going to have fun the rest of the time that we have with her. And um, the guy goes, I'm looking in the paper and I saw that there was a comedy show out here. And we were like, let's go to the comedy club. And they came out and she, they were like, she really loved you. I was like, wow, man, that's, that's incredible. And the guy goes, and this is how I know this is where I'm supposed to be. And the guy goes, I lived here for 35 years. I didn't know that they had comedy here. Funny, they've been doing comedy for over 20, 25 years. He goes, I never knew that they did comedy. I looked at the paper. It was the first thing that I saw. And I'm like, could you tell her, you know, I said, thank you and all that. And it's like, yeah, you know, we really appreciate it. We'll tell her. And they left and I went in the green room and I cried. <laughs> and I was just like, it just, it hit me in such a way. I was like, okay, all right, man, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And um, I had another incident over in Windsor. I had a gout attack. And if you never had a gout attack, don't have a gout. <laughs> drink your water, drink lots of water, stay away from the red meats and the liquors. Gout's terrible to the point to where I felt sick, like feverish. And it was in the fall. It was cold. I mean, it was raining hard. It was cold rain, which made it feel worse. And I was going over to do a show. My friend had a show at a, a bar over there. I'm closing the show, but I'm like, I don't, I can't, I, I have to get home. I don't feel well. And I tell him this, he's like, well, I'm putting you up first. So I go up and, um, there's this young lady who was sitting in the front and she had almost like, like a hijab, like mm-hmm. covering her, her head. 
I'm telling jokes, sitting down. I'm telling you, I have gout, whatever. It's all right. I know a stand up, but I'm going to sit down. Oh, oh, oh. And I do my act. And each joke, she's laughing loudly. And I'm like going, okay, it's not that funny. You know, <laughs> I didn't deliver it very well. Like halfway through my set, I'm going, wow, you're laughing really hard. It's like, I want to take you to all of my shows. And after I'm done, good night, I go to the door and I'm talking to another friend before I leave. She comes over to me. She goes, man, I was incredible, you know, funny. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. You know, I appreciate it. She goes, I just want to tell you, it's like, I just found out that I'm losing my hearing in my ear. So I already completely deaf in one ear. It's some, I forgot what she had, but it was something that took her hearing from one ear and she was losing it. Just found out she was losing it in her other And she's like, I've been depressed walking around the other day and I walk past this place and I see in the window it's comedy night Thursday night comedy and she's like I want to hear something I want to laugh and she's like I decided to come in and here I am and I'm just looking at her and she said so I just wanted to thank you and she shook she shook my hand and my buddy goes well there are other comics there's more comedy and she goes no I got what I needed and she laughed and I looked at Red and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go home. And I jumped in my car and I cried all the way back, <laughs> all the way home. It's things like that, that you just go, okay. When it happens, it's like, all right, this is it. This was meant to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And so those two instances, the Ted Talk thing, Kevin Hurt, all of this for me is, this is where I'm supposed to be. Well, and you just tell stories that you're so relatable. I mean, you take people through emotions on your sets. I've watched YouTube even outside of the shows I've been to. And you do this every single time. You make people laugh. You're so relatable. I was laughing at the one show where you're talking about Italian woman. And as one myself, I was like, damn, he's really hitting the nail on the head. And my friend's losing it laughing. But (laughs) then you bring it back and talk about your mom and how difficult that was losing her and talking about your kiddos and you are just so relatable, and that's why you're meant to do what you do. Again, not hating on other comedians, but it's not so absurd or just so Hollywood, like no one can relate to or it's funny, but you tell a different set and it's always the same. You always like, you laugh, you want to cry, you want to give you a hug, you just leave feeling so great and wonderful. And I just have to give you kudos because you you are meant to do what you do because you're so good. Thank you. You know, I, I don't watch a lot of comedy. A lot of comedians. There are a handful of comedians that I just ride or die with. Dave Chappelle, Bill Burr, Chris Rock, to name a few. And I study how they deliver their jokes. I study how they draw a lot of emotion, their intent uh, when they're telling their jokes to get people a little bristled up. And I've always liked the way Chappelle, it's almost performance art to watch him tell a story that draws people in. And then he says something that like, oh man, okay, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yes. And, and that's when I, you know, I tell the joke about my son coming out. And uh, I've had people come up to me and, and tell me, it's like, man, I, you had me in tears. You know, like it was very emotional for them. I've had people tell me, I, I've experienced that with my kid and so on. I have a joke about getting, a, you know, a prostate exam, but I'd never say that. I never use those words, but I, I describe it in such a way where I've had doctors come up to me <laughs> and say, thank you for, for talking about this, because especially as a, a black man in this country, 
we don't invest in our health as we should, as other cultures may. So they thank me for that. So I try to, I, I'm into the sillies and the goofies and I say wild and crazy stuff, but I also want to leave a message and have people take something from me. Well, you know what? That resonates. And to this day, I'll have people come up to me like that joke you told about da da da. I forgot about that joke. I don't even know if I could tell it now because I've, I've forgotten about it. But it, it sticks with people. So that's my success in all of this. Eventually, one day I'll be, you know, a millionaire doing this. Who knows? Maybe I won't. But if I could tell something to people that they could take with them and then share it with others, that's, that's crazy to me. That's bananas. Did you ever think you would be at this point? No. No? No. I'm, I'm an engineer. I, I wouldn't say I was comfortable with it, but I was complacent with just designing vehicles and parts and all of that jazz. Now this drives me. And, you know, I tell people, you know, all the time that my engineering job is my wife and my comedy job is my sexy Latina girlfriend. <laughs> and I love them both for different reasons. Different reasons, right. Well, you know. I love being with my sexy Latina girlfriend. <laughs> that's that's where it's at. So, yeah. What's in the future? I mean, you're just, I feel, you start this entertainment company. You just gave your TEDx speak. Like, what other incredible things are you going to do in the future? What What's in store for 2023? Oh, boy. Well, 2023 is the takeover. I, I've already deemed it. Um, I told my kids when I turned 50 that I'm going to be a billionaire by the time I'm 60. And they laugh. And, of course, I tell other people that and they laugh. And it's the one thing that I've learned is that when you dream, the dream is only for you. Oh, yes. And the only people that can see your dream are you and Freddy Krueger. But <laughs> Freddy Krueger is not real. So the dream is for you. And what I've learned, you know, over the decades is I would explain to people my dreams and they wouldn't be as excited about it as I would be. So then I would think, well, that's stupid. And then I would just leave it alone. And then someone else would do it. I'm like, hey, that was my idea. I was supposed to do that. So it took me a while. My, you know, obviously in my 40s, I stopped asking people and started saying, okay, these dreams could be reality. Well, let's see how we can make a reality. And even if we don't, even if I don't, I can get close to it. So even if I don't become a billionaire, if I made 750 million, you'll be okay. <laughs> I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So that's my whole attitude about it. That's my plan. I'm a positive dude. So 2023, Back to that, making this entertainment company even bigger. I want to dominate the state of Michigan and eventually dominate the Midwest. Um, I'm not too concerned about the whole country. If it happens, God love you, whatever. But to go to that level, uh, I would like to get into acting more. I acted a little bit. I want to do that more. I want to go over to Europe and uh, tour over there, take this comedy over there and make it travel. Um, but really, that's my my ultimate goal. And to I me, mean, I'm sure other people have it. Yeah, eventually leave my day gig. You know, that's the ultimate. It worked for myself because the best manager I ever had, best boss I ever had was me. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. And I love the point you're bringing up about dreams because, I mean, not sure if you know this, but I have a resume writing company and I talk with people from different career paths every day. And it's just so many people are just like, well, I think it's dumb or, 
oh, I really like this, but I don't think I should. It's like, well, why are you being – and I used to be one of those. I very much was the same person. I was like, no, I can't do this. This is too much. I This podcast we're on right now is hilarious that I'm doing this now, talking to someone like you who is a local celebrity and really big deal. But it's just, why not just do it? Like, what's the worst that can happen? You're telling yourself no ahead of time. Like, just freaking do the goddamn thing and stop right. being your own worst enemy. Well, the problem is we're groomed from a very young age to get an education, get a job, get married, have kids, or, well, get a house, <laughs> have kids, have the car, do all of this. And we're conditioned to believe that. So we're not conditioned to say, hey, man, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, he was like, hey, what do you want to be when you want to grow up? I want to be a fire truck. Well, you can't be a fire truck. You can be a fireman, but you can't be a fire truck, idiot. <laughs> you would tell kids, you know, just flat out call kids idiots. Uh, no, but um, we're conditioned and groomed to, to do things that are safe. And I feel this is the first time in history that whatever you set your mind to do, uh, you could do it and be successful at it and be fruitful, you know, uh, financially at it. You're doing a podcast. To do what you're doing now, you would have to go to work for some kind of uh, communications company, whether it's uh, a radio or TV or whatever, or even uh, a local television company, local cable or something like that. Now you don't have to. You have a camera, you have a microphone, you have your headphones. You could interview whoever you want. You can make a movie with your cell phone. You can do comedy specials. You don't need Comedy Central. You don't need Netflix. You can do that on your own and post it on YouTube and make money that way. So to me, I know we, the golden age of, of America through, you know, mass production and all of that. Yeah, that was the first golden age. But right now, I mean, people are getting rich off of TikTok. Mm-hmm. They're getting rich playing video games and having people watch them play video games. That blows my mind. But any way you can get it, get it. There's no reason not to. You can go to school and get a, a degree if you want to feel safe, but you can do that and do this. It's not tied into one another. Every, both can be mutually exclusive and you can be successful, really successful at one as you build up the other. You know, I, I wish I were 10 years young, you know? I'm fascinated by this. I'm fascinated by what the millennials have. I'm fascinated about creating content and how easy it is. So as far as fears are concerned, I mean, Kobe Bryant has, has a video out. I just watched a few days ago. Every now and then I, I pull it up. also recommend reading The uh, Alchemist. Oh, okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. I read it at the end of every year to motivate me for the following year. Because that right there is a story about learning what your, your true north is, what your true path is, and pursuing it. And once you pursue it, then the universe moves everything out of your way. And that was me in common. Once I really decided to pursue it, everything got moved out of the way and it became easy for me. I'm not saying I'm the best at it, but it's not hard for me because I love doing what I'm doing. This is what I'm supposed to do. But Kobe Bryant has this video out where he says, why are you afraid of failing? Why are you afraid to fail? Because you can work and work and work and hone your craft and do good at it and so on and so forth and be a success. But you're still going to work hard at it because you want to be more successful at it. But if you work and work and work and hone your craft and you fail at it, 
you're still going to get up the next morning and work harder and harder and harder so you can become more successful at it. So either way, the goal is to become more successful in what you're doing. So why fear it? Failure is nothing to be feared. Failure is something to let you know, okay, this is what I need to tweak or I need to improve on or I need to get faster at or stronger at to get better. And once you get better, you still are striving to get better. And to me, that's that's everything. That's everything. Why fear any of this? Go do it. I will tell you, when I got fired from my job, that was the video I watched on repeat. And I pretty much can recite the whole Kobe Bryant video to you. I love that video. It's so great. It's so good. As I would cry, I'm like, I've got fired from my job. I'm working three jobs. I don't know if I should do this. And it was just Kobe screaming in the background. I'm like, yep, he's got it. He's right. He's right. Just keep playing it. Put it on repeat. Oh, I would listen to it for hours. Hours. So I love that you love that too. It's important. It's important. We're taught failing is like the end-all be-all. And when you're an athlete, of course you don't want to fail. You want to succeed every chance that you get. But it doesn't mean that you're not trying to succeed. Sometimes the other team or the other player is just better. And there's nothing wrong with that. So do you just say, eh, I suck at this. I'm going to quit. Or you're like, I'm really passionate about this. I really want to improve and be as good as I possibly can be. And, you know, back in the day, we were told, hey, if you're not good at it, just quit and go do something else. Well, now, if you're not good at it, just keep working at it. There's nothing wrong with it, you know? It's just, it just isn't. There, there isn't. Some things you're great at that other people suck at. <laughs> Some things you suck at that other people are great at. That's just the balance of life. Why take it personally? Well, and you don't wake up just in a, a success. Like, you don't wake up like comedy legend or I didn't wake up like, wow, I'm really good at writing resumes. Like that 10,000 hour rule. I brought this up on my last podcast, but Malcolm Gladwell's from his book Outliers of the 10,000 rule of 10,000 hours into something. You're an expert, but it's so true. And I think it's hard. I mean, it's not a glorious path and you've shared some of the hardships and I've preached about mine on every other podcast. So I won't bore listeners again with mine, but you just have to keep at it. And question for you, though, do you have people because I've learned this a lot, like people that see your vision that you really trust or like rely on, whether it's other comedians, friends, partners, family members, your own kids. Do you have anyone that you rely on when you're having those down days or days when you're like, I don't know if this is what I should do? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, my best friend, Jim, my buddy, Jim, Jim Backus. Uh, I've known this guy since I was 19. He's always told me that I should be a comedian. And I was just like, Jim, I have a family to raise and responsibilities. You don't understand, you know, but he was right. And whenever I'm feeling kind of uh, some kind of way, that's my hype guy. He's my flavor flav. And um, <laughs> I love this dude, you know, and vice versa. When he's not, you know, having a great day, I'm his hype guy. Yeah. If I'm going through it, it's him. 100%. And you have to have that, right? There's going to be people that aren't going to... I've had friends I've grown up with. I've had family members like, oh, your business is cute. That's cute. You have a little podcast. And it's just, it's so frustrating, but it's like, screw them. I'm not going to give the energy, the bad energy. You just be positive, like you said, and give your love to the people that support and love you, no matter what. Only two people can see your dreams. Only two people. You and Freddy (laughs) Krueger. I'm telling you, only two people. I love that. Here's the other thing, too. People generally don't back you or support you until you've done something. And once you've done something, then it's like, whoa, okay, maybe I should start paying attention. Maybe I should share their their show dates or their videos 
or when they make announcements about, you know, uh, shows that they're producing, maybe I should go and support this person because up to and until then, it's just bop, 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 and everybody's bop, 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 bop. Um, when you start doing things and people start taking notice, it's like, okay, okay. And I don't sit back and say, well, I told you and do it. I don't do that. I go, okay, what else can I do next to, to show these people I'm serious about this? So the next thing was, you know, comedy, Kevin Hart. Then I'm in Flagstar, every Flagstar bait. My big head is in there as a model for the bait. I was uh, Santa Claus for OnStar last winter, last Christmas, which was crazy. Then I, you know, I start my business, this uh, Sam Rose Entertainment. Then I do the TEDx. So instead of telling people I want to be great, I show them. And when you show them, they're like, okay, I can get behind this guy. I did see you in Flagstar. I was just in one the other day and I was like, I know that guy. It's the craziest feeling in the world. It's the craziest feeling in the world. I have that. When I was at TEDx, there's a guy who is a manager at Flagstar, some higher up there. He goes, as soon as I saw your name, I'm like, I didn't know this guy. <laughs> he stares at you every day. <laughs> like, I couldn't place where I saw him. Like, I, that's what he said. It's like, I stare at your face every day. He's right outside my office. I was like, yeah, man. I'm everywhere. Right. Can't get rid of me. I love that. I'm telling you. You're incredible. Now, as we wrap up, first of all, where can people find you? Where can listeners find you? My website uh, is michaeljeter.com, G-E-E-T-E-R.com. Uh, I'm on the Book of Faces, uh, Mike Jeter. I'm on Instagram and uh, Twitter as O-H, oh, Mike Jeter. And I just got on TikTok about a month and a half ago. I'm trying to figure that out. Oh. Uh, yeah. I'm not doing any dances, man. So if you guys have any suggestions on how I can get rich without doing dances, uh I'll sing, but I'm not going to do a TikTok. You don't have to do the dances. We'll, we'll talk TikTok, but I'm going to follow you because I'm excited for you to be on TikTok. Okay. Yes, and my last question I like to ask every guest, what advice do you have for listeners? Never get too high, never get too low. Life is balanced. Uh, you're going to have things that are just ridiculously cool happen. You're going to have things that are tragically terrible. And it's hard to consider yourself, but... Um, if you constantly repeat that mantra of never getting too high, never getting too low, that'll help you center yourself quicker and you'll be able to make better decisions. You'll, you won't be as afraid of these things occurring. And, you know, when good things happen, you'll just say, hey, that's cool. OK, what's next? When bad things happen, you're like, wow, man, that's horrible. OK, what's next? What do I have to do to get myself on the other side of this? So that would be my suggestion and my advice to all of the listeners. And if it doesn't work, give me a call. I'll, I'll train you. I'll teach you on it. I'll be your uh, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi. There we go. Add that to your resume. Or Obi-Wan, whatever you're into. Whatever you're into. <laughs> Mike, this was so much fun. Thank you for agreeing to be on. I just feel so energized and I'm so excited for the future for you. Thank you so much. Likewise. You're Thank welcome. You. And I'll catch you on the show soon. Yes, I will be. I'm in Ann Arbor in uh, December, December 29th. You know, it's on my list. Actually, it's on my calendar because I have to see if I'm going to be in town or not. But it's already on my calendar. Funny enough. Oh, there it is. I love it. And for listeners, thank you again for tuning in to another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. 
Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.